Amen, and indeed, He is a great God that we serve and worship today. It's good to see you all, and again, good to be gathered in worship. I'm hoping that this mic works for me the entire time that I am here, but uh, sometimes it's interesting because Kyla and I, my wife, we like to keep track of kind of who's here from week to week, and she's really good at that. Sometimes, um, though, she'll ask me, like, uh, was so-and-so there? And I'll realize that I'll have stood before you for like 30 or 40 minutes, and I can't remember. And this isn't that big of a sanctuary, so I'm just scanning right now. Just scanning. Just scanning. Here. Thank you, kid. Thank you. So-so. Kind of here. All right. I see you. Um, Awesome. I, I want to be able to answer my wife with honesty and credibility when she asked me if so-and-so was here. If you're a guest with us, man, we're glad that you're here. And uh, some of you we haven't seen for a while. And welcome, welcome back. And it's good to see folks that have been a part of our church family and community and uh, who, are, who are with us today. And some, again, for the first time, we hope that you feel very much at home as we've sung some new songs, and as we've sung some great classics of the, the church, it's good to lift our voices together um, with God's people. Paige, you're even here. Hi. <laughs> I almost overlooked you. See? Isn't that weird? How do I do that? Um, kids, I need an eight-year-old. Who's, who's eight? Before you go, is there an eight-year-old in the house? Brody, come here. Brody just happens to be Somebody else? Is there another eight-year-old? I'll take two. Who? David Schuyler? Safe. <laughs> Wait a year, buddy. All right, Brody. Um, imagine, Brody, and I want the rest of you to imagine, we're not going to talk a lot about King Josiah today. However, he is in the period of the reading that many of you will be uh, reading this week for your small group, uh, one of the kings of Judah, and without a doubt, the, and before Jesus, the last great king of God's people. And Josiah, you're not Josiah, you're Brody. However, Josiah ascended to the throne when he was eight years old. And Josiah, a few years later, as they were cleaning out the temple after a big remodeling project, he was a construction-minded king, a, a big remodeling project, they found the law, the book of the law that had been hidden, lost, And the people had gone wayward because of their lack of understanding and knowledge of the law of God. They found it and brought it to Josiah. And he said, we've been missing it, folks. We need to turn around and live a new way. And he brought some of the greatest reform and renewal to the people of God that there ever was. It all started with a kid that looked a little bit like Brody. I wonder if Josiah had a haircut. Like Brody. <laughs> Brody's also my nephew, for those of you who may not know this, and uh, one of my favorites. 
along with Dane and Ryder. And my niece, Reese, who happens to be here today as well with Mom Carmen. Thank you, Brody. And friends, can we remember that wrapped up in eight-year-olds and six-year-olds and five-year-olds and 10-year-olds and 12-year-olds is the potential of God to reform and renew his people and to bring about revival and to bring about life and possibility for the people of God, even in our world today. Are you feeling the pressure? Give me a high five. Awesome. Give Brody a hand. Give all the kids a hand. And give them a high five as they go to Children's Church. Lead the way, King Brody. Kids, you can go. Have a great time. Seriously, I'd like to say my sermon gets better from here. <laughs> I really would. I really would. <laughs> but, but, I mean, in your hearts and in your lives right now, is there anything just more meaningful and special than what we've just talked about and witnessed and observed? Praise God. Um, praise God. Well, let's pray. Lord, help us uh, as we think about these things, as we tune our hearts to your word in these moments, and as we think about uh, maybe some, I don't know, maybe some hard things for some of us here this morning. Um, we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us, that your Holy Spirit would be gracious and uh, peace-giving to our hearts, even, even today. We love you. We thank you for those kids. And we thank you for what you're growing in them, even as they study your word today. Not just, uh, not just nice kids, but kids who love Jesus and who live for God with all that they have and with all that they are. Amen. All right, well, we're continuing our study of the story. It's this journey, if you're just joining us, it's this journey that we started way back in September through the entire narrative of the biblical story from Genesis and we'll end up in Revelation. It's a 31-week journey and uh, it's a long haul and we knew that from the beginning and we're just a week past the halfway point here and, uh, and so continue. Hang in there. We're, we're really, I mean, it's been good, I, I trust, and it's getting even gooder. I mean, it's, it's just going to be Good, all right? And so hang with us. We've really been watching these two stories running kind of concurrently. One is what we might call the lower story, which is kind of this historical development and what's going on among the people and the events and the interactions of, of people on kind of a human earthly level. And then we've also, though, been assessing and evaluating and looking at this, what we might call the upper story of what God is doing throughout these points of history, how how God is moving, how God is shaping, how God is interacting and, and accomplishing his purposes. And one of the things that we've shown throughout this story, and I want to be sure to say this again today because it, will, it is true today and it will continue on throughout this story, is that God is always pursuing his people. God is always extending himself. God is always reaching. God is always moving towards his people, even when it may appear on some levels that he's pulling back. And so let's be mindful of that today. Uh, we've, again, crossed the halfway point, and uh, we've hit on some really great parts. That's kind of the good news. 
what, what isn't such good news, I won't call it bad news, but is that today we come to one of the real low points in the history of the Old Testament. I mean, there's the fall in the garden, right? That was pretty bad. If you want to talk about low points, I mean, that was probably the lowest. There, there was the flood of all the earth because of the sin of humanity. Pretty bad as well. That, that was uh, not, a, not a high point. Um, and, and then there's this, there's this foreign exile that the people of Israel and now this week Judah enter into, a, again, a, a tragic season, a, 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 a period of time in the history of God's people that on the lower story in particular, it can be looked back upon as one of the most devastating and despairing seasons in all of their history. And yet, on the upper story, as I hope we'll see today, a season in which God continued to be at work in the lives of his people. Last week, we read of the northern kingdom. Man, last week I got home and I thought, I think I just confused those people. Um, I, I confused myself a little bit when I, Hezekiah and that, you know, we were all over the map. Um, but just to briefly summarize, we talked about the northern kingdom, the ten tribes. You remember they were divided. The ten tribes went to the north, to Israel. And we talked about their uh, being conquered by the nation of Assyria, by this foreign power of Assyria that came in kicked them out, really dis, just sent them into this, this dispersion. And the ten lost tribes of Israel are what we know of today because of that, that, uh, that horrible uh, invasion. That was in 722 B.C. Uh, and today, um, or at that point, you remember, we talked about this, Judah, the, the southern kingdom, was spared because of the prayers of Hezekiah. Do you remember this? He, he took the letter from the Assyrian powers and he laid it before the Lord. Maybe some of you read that again this week in your small groups. He laid it before the Lord and, and Isaiah came and he said, no, that's not happening to you people at this point. And, and the southern kingdom was spared the, uh, the invasion by the Assyrian kingdom. Today we jump ahead a hundred plus years or so, to 687 B.C. And this time we find Judah now again confronted by uh, the new bully on the block, the new bully on the playground, the new world superpower on the scene, and this time it's Babylon. Uh, Babylon has just the word, the the name has taken on all sorts of... of, uh, New meanings since this original Babylon and just evil powers basically in the world are often referred to. And even in, 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 Gen, in Revelation, we hear of, of Babylon, most likely speaking of Rome, the, the bad evil power at that time it was written. But this is the original understanding of Babylon. They'd been on the block for a while when we find them and we'll pick up in our story this morning after Josiah had shown himself to be this brief, bright spot on the landscape of Judah's kings, leading them to great reform and renewal. His sons and their sons and brothers, it all becomes a great 
big mess once again. And there's an, a, another line of three or four kings after Josiah that just again turn Judah away from God, back to uh, relying on other powers in the world, worshiping of false gods, disastrous results. And ultimately, these kings try to play in a political move. They try to play one superpower off on another a couple of times, actually. And this only results in making these powerful nations mad. I mean, you don't play world powers against each other without getting into trouble. This is all kind of on that lower story. And in fact, Babylon says, we've had enough. Uh, They have some battles and skirmishes with Judah and put down various rebellions. They deport several of the people from Judah to Babylon in 604 and then again in 597. But by the time 588, you're keeping all these dates straight, 587 come around, the, the, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, finally, it's as if he says, you know what, I am tired of this little ant that just keeps crawling over my toe. We're going to squash it for good and erase this nation from the history books altogether. So we're going to read of this erasing, 2 Kings chapter 25. This is the last smile you'll get from me for a couple of minutes at least. Stand with me, though, while I read this. Will you? 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 1 down to verse 21. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the 11th year of Zedekiah. So that's at least two years. You following that? Siege against this city. Nothing in, nothing out. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. This is the Judah army leaving. They fled toward the Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah, who was the king, before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. On the seventh day of the fifth month, in the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down, The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city along with the rest of the populace and those who had gone over to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and fields. 
The Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars, the movable stands in the bronze sea that were at the temple of the Lord, and they carried the bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, shovels, wick trimmers, dishes, and all the bronze articles used in the temple service. The commander of the imperial guard took away the censers and sprinkling bowls, all that were made of pure gold or silver. The bronze from the two pillars, the sea and the movable stands which Solomon had made from the temple of the Lord was more than could be weighed. Each pillar was 27 feet high. The bronze capital on top of one pillar was four and a half feet high and was decorated with a network and pomegranates of bronze all around. The other pillar with its network was similar. Commander of the guard took took his prisoners, Sariah the chief priest, Zephaniah the priest next in rank, and the three doorkeepers. Of those still in the city, he took the officer in charge of the fighting men and five royal advisors. He also took the secretary who was chief officer in charge of conscripting the people, conscripting the people of the land and 60 of his men who were found in the city. Nebuzaradan, the commander, took them all and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. There at Riblah in the land of Hamath, the king had them executed. So Judah went into captivity away from her land. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Well, listening to the uh, director of the Russian Olympics Friday night and the president of Russia speaking in their native tongue for uh, just a few moments. I just caught like the last... I thought it was going to be the last half hour. It turned out to be about an hour and a half, I think, in the Olympic, in the opening ceremonies. Um, but it reminded, listening to them speak in Russian, just reminded me of, of a, a trip to Russia that I was privileged to be a part of when I was in college several years ago now. I think it was 1991 that we went on this trip. And, and many of you, if you've been around for a while, you've heard me talk about this trip. It was, it was significantly formative in my life. And... So I reference back to it from time to time. Uh, lots of interesting things went on in that trip. It was, uh, the, you know, the walls of communism had just come down. American religious groups in particular were just being allowed to come into Russia. And uh, we didn't know how long that might last. So it was like, let's get in there and see what we can do. And so we partnered with a church there, a Baptist church in, in a little town called Bryansk, Russia. And we went out to various regions or, or cities around in that region and we held evangelistic services, we passed out Bibles, and we just let the Russians gawk at the crazy Amerikanskis. I mean, it was, it was quite uh, an event for sure. But with all the things that went on there in that trip, one of my strongest memories, again, I've shared this before, but one of the strongest memories still to this day came on the day that we arrived in Bryansk. We had been traveling, planes, trains, and automobiles. I mean, you name it. We had taken everything. I don't think we did any horseback, but it was uh, pretty much or tanks, but we saw a bunch of those. Um, but to get to this town of Bryansk, and it, it seemed like it had been days that we had been traveling, and we finally got there, and the first order of business when we landed in Bryansk was to break us up into pairs to go and stay with various families from the church there in Bryansk. And uh, so my, my buddy and I got sent with this family, and when we got there, we just did a lot of sign language and, you know, charades and Probably drank a cup of coffee, not vodka. They didn't serve that at these homes. It was served everywhere else in the the town. But um, 
Then they asked us if we want to take a nap. At least we think that's what they asked us. Um, <laughs> because they kind of pointed to some beds. And we, we did. And we slept for a while. Probably about four-hour nap in the middle of this day. And part of it was because we were really tired. And part of it, I think, was because we didn't have to meet up with the rest of our team for another, like, 24 hours. And I don't think we knew what in the world we were going to do for those remaining hours when we would be awake. And, but I remember waking up from my nap. And you know that little time in between when you're asleep and when you're awake? And, and you're, you're kind of thinking, all right, where, where am I? You know, what do I got to do today? Do all my body parts move? You know, that kind of time right there. Well, I was in that time for a few moments, and, and I just kind of asked myself, you know, where am I? I, I kind of had the feeling like I was going to Russia or something. And then, in hushed voices, because they didn't want to wake us up, in the room next door with walls that were probably about that thin, we could hear the voices speaking back and forth to one another in Russian. And I knew in that moment that, yes, not only was I taking a trip to Russia, I am actually in Russia, and I am in a home with people who only speak Russian. And the, not only the language, but the customs that they carry on here are very different. And not only the customs, but the whole uh, approach, basically, to life is, is different. And, and I am awaking, quite literally, to a new reality, in, at least for the next three weeks of my life. I've awoken to a new reality. We were far, far from home, both in terms of miles and in terms of mentality, and it was a, it was a new day. It, it has me thinking a little bit about this story, a little bit about our lives. Perhaps there's been days in our lives where we have awoken to a new reality. Maybe it was physical. I, I think of folks who lived during the days of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And I've only heard stories, obviously, but maybe some of you were around or know people who were in those days. And I can only imagine to awaken the day after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and to, to recognize that as a nation and for so many individuals and families that they were awakening to a new, very physical Reality and and kind of made me think about you know nine twelve September twelfth two thousand one the day after nine eleven the day after all these things happened in in our world and and for many of us who were alive during all of us I think well close uh, to awaken on that nine twelve to a new reality that we lived in a world where there was threat where there was terror where there was violence and it had come home we were awakening to new realities quite physically and literally. These are dramatic examples, but examples of times when we've awoken to new situations in life and realized that we're far from where we were just a few hours ago. We're, we're in a new place from where we were just yesterday, perhaps. We've awakened to the reality that things have not turned out the way that we thought they were going to turn out. They've taken a hard turn. Without a doubt, the invasion of Judah by Babylon was this for the people of God. Uh, their subsequent deportation from their homeland, their exile that would last 
70 years to these cities in Babylon, this was undoubtedly awakening to a new reality that things had changed dramatically. One commentator simply notes the Babylonian exile was a watershed event, (laughs) understatement of understatements, in the history of Israel, both politically and spiritually. Things would never be the same after that. My daughter Katie was watching a science video this week uh, for one of her classes, and I sometimes like to pretend that I can help her with her homework. And uh, especially when it comes to the areas of science and math, I just nod a lot. And, yeah, I think so. Looks good. So this was a, a science video that she seemed a little bit stumped by, so I thought I'd lend a hand, you know. And so I kind of leaned in, and, and she was learning about the KT boundary. Somebody nod that you know what the KT boundary is. Oh, nice. I can talk about this like I'm an expert then. You guys don't know either. All right, well, evidently, as I learned in these moments, and I didn't learn very much about it. There's other seventh graders in the room who know what I'm talking about. Uh, The the KT boundary is is this geological line in the rocks of the earth that scientists have discovered in various parts of the world that that demonstrates and that signifies the end of one geological era and the beginning of a new era in time. I think this is fascinating. I don't know how old you think the earth is, and that's not really the point that I'm making here, so don't get get distracted by that. But just this idea that there's this, this line that geologists have discovered that says there was one era of time, and then there's this line and there's this new era of time. This is what the, the, the exile, the, the Babylonian invasion was and would be for the people of Judah, for the people of God. It would be an incredibly formative time. For 70 years, again, they would remain there in Babylon as people, and they would be forever shaped by their experience. You can't help but be shaped by this season of, of loss, of exile in your lives. They would experience this season of exile in a number of ways. And I want to talk about that for a few moments this morning, the different ways in which the people of Judah experienced exile, how it would have been understood and how they would have received it and how they would have learned from this period of exile. And I want to suggest to us today that as we listen to how Israel or Judah, the people of Judah experienced exile, stay with me, that we Two might use this as a metaphor for how we experience our lives today and how at times in our lives we go through periods, rather real brief or very long, that seem like a new reality, a new era has begun. One has ended, another has begun. Uh, not necessarily on a physical realm now, but in a spiritual, and perhaps not on the same scale as Judah, but we too can learn and grow from these experiences. I think this will make sense as I get into this, hopefully. Judah, first and foremost, the biblical record makes clear that exile was experienced as consequences for their sinful choices. This exile for them was experienced as consequences for their sinful choices. Judah had Jerusalem, the holy city. They had temple built by Solomon. They had 
the kingship that had gone, begun way earlier and had carried on in, obviously, to them at least, ordained and given to them by God. They had all these markers. They had ritual. They had all these externals that had been given to them. But what Judah had lost was covenant relationship with the God who had called them into covenant. They had time and time again, as we have read over the last several weeks, it's, you know, just repeat, repeat, play, repeat, play, repeat. It's, it's walk away from God, turn to idols. It's, it's worship these foreign gods. It's assimilate into the behaviors of the foreign nations around us. It's turn our backs on the God who delivered us from Egypt. And this is the continuing saga and story of the people of Judah. And whatever the political reasons there were going on in the lower story, we know that in the upper story, that though God had been gracious, that God had extended his mercy wider than any uh, being could have ever been expected to extend it, that he had been patient with their sinfulness and disobedience to this point, there would be a final straw. Look at this passage from Jeremiah. Jeremiah was one of the prophets writing in this period, this time of of conquest and exile. And he says this in uh, chapter 11. The Lord said to me, there's a conspiracy among the people of Judah and those who live in Jerusalem. They have returned to the sins of their forefathers who refused to listen to my words. They have followed other gods to serve them, both the house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken the covenant I made with their forefathers. Had this simply been a contract, then God would have broken that long before. But this was a covenant relationship that God had entered into. I will be your God, you will be my people. And he had given them time and time and time opportunities Loving and kind, patient, slow to anger. Until now, the people's rebellion had gone so far that the justice of God would simply not allow for this one-sided relationship to continue. The consequences would be broken relationship. The consequences would be removal of blessings of that relationship. The consequences would be exile. Parents in the room, you know the importance of consequences. I'm not saying we're good at giving them, but I'm saying we know the importance of them. Kids in the room, stop listening for a moment. Um, we, uh, as parents, we set boundaries. We know that's healthy. We know that's helpful for you. And then sometimes when you go beyond those boundaries, we say, you better not or else. And then you go against those boundaries or outside those boundaries again, and we say, or else, or else, or else, or else. And the consequences, we're, we're, we're not real good sometimes at giving them, but we've discovered that when we do give those consequences, it helps you. Now, kids, you're listening again, right? It helps you. You may not have thought that, but it really does. Well, the same thing's going on here in God's relationship with his children. He's gracious, he's kind, he's patient. But just as it was for Judah, there are consequences, or just as it was for our kids, there's consequences for Judah. If they were to experience the, the love of God in all its fullness, actually, they would, it would be necessary for them to receive consequences. As parents, and this is just a little parental 
parental tip that I'm learning. I don't have this all figured out, but parents, consequences are a good thing. Can I get an amen? amen. All right, they, they really are. This is like extra, won't cost you anything. Um, but um, really are good. Clear, expected, understood consequences. And, and that's one way as parents that we actually think that we're being mean, but we're actually being loving. I'm not talking about harshness or cruelty, but I'm talking about clear consequences. And this is what God was allowing to happen to the people of Judah. And the same is true in our lives as well. He's gracious. He's kind to us as well. But we have to realize, and we have experienced this before in our lives, right? That there are times when there will be consequences for our own sinful choices. There will be resulting consequences for our disobedience and our rebellion. And that and those times when we experience those consequences have, have at times perhaps sent us into what feels like a period of exile, of, of isolation, of aloneness, as if we are almost even separated from God. And perhaps some of you have felt this, and perhaps some of you are even feeling it right now consequences of sinful choices. For Judah, exile was also experienced as endurance of pain and loss. This just became for them a a period to simply hold on, to endure amidst the incredible pain and loss that they were experiencing. We read some of it there in chapter 25 of 2 Kings, right? I mean, we, we read just of the violence with which Babylon came in, that the temple destroyed this place that, though they had not made great use of it, was still such a sacred place for them. All the instruments, all the things that they had that were, that were lost, not to mention the, the physical loss, the death, and the destruction, the executions that went on. All these things that were so important to them, they had lost it all and sent into Babylon, sent into exile far. I wish I would have put up a map, but it's a long ways. It's not a hundred miles. It's hundreds of miles from where they were in captivity or in, in Judah to Babylonian exile a long ways away. And in this new land, not only had they lost their stuff or their people, but they had lost or were losing their identity. They were losing their nationhood. They were losing their sense of who they had been as the people of God. And they had to endure this time of great loss. Look at this from Lamentations, another book that many think Jeremiah wrote that... uh, speaks of of the lament of the people as the nation of Judah was falling. He writes, after affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her, there's more, have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. Just speaking, again, this, this lament, this, this 
emotion, this pathos coming from the writer, speaking of the, the depth of loss. We too, in our lives, have we not experienced great loss in our lives as a community just in December losing our friend Tom Hutchison? And, and we've lost several loved ones and family members in recent years, whether it's the loss of a loved one, the loss of a, a job, the loss of a, a career, the loss of a marriage, the loss of a dream, the loss perhaps of our physical health. These are all losses that we experience and pain that we undergo as we move throughout life. And these are all things that can tip us into a period and a season of, of disappointment and of exile. Exile as a time of enduring pain and loss. The last one that I've noted for Judah is that they would experience exile as strangers in a strange land. Strangers in a strange land. Again, foreigners, outsiders brought to this new place that was not their home. It would never be their home. I think of several here who are from places other than the United States, and we are so glad that you are here. And and yet we just recognize that maybe when you come here, things are different. Us Americans are kind of weird, and we own that, and we're sorry for that. Um. But we're, we're glad that you, you come here. And several of us perhaps have traveled to other nations. And, and uh, in, those, in those places sometimes, I mean, you can just feel like a, an outsider. Why? Because you are one. You don't know. I mean, Kyla and I even went to Canada last spring. And even in Canada, we were confused as to various parts of culture and experience. Thankfully, they're nice people. And they helped us out. But we know that experience of being in different places, in a land that is not our own. Customs for the Judah, people from Judah, they would find there that were not the ones they were used to. The language that was spoken was not theirs. In a sense, they were these, what people have called these resident aliens in that foreign land. In, uh, we read of their discontent with this in Psalm 137. Psalm 137 has become one of the most famous psalms not because it's sweet and kind, but because it's rough and brutal and speaks of the discontent of the people of Judah as they've gone into Babylonian exile. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion, Zion being Judah and Jerusalem. There on the poplars, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. And it goes on from there. I've actually left out some of the harder parts of the psalm. In a sense, every follower of Jesus 
is a stranger in a strange land. Every person who has said in this world, I'm going to live for God, you have made it so that ultimately this world is not your home. Till the day I die, I'll sing these songs. Where are my switchfoot people in the house? On the shores of Babylon, still looking for a home in a world where I belong. They even use that, that, that metaphor, that analogy of the shores of Babylon and this world being that place where we are in these days, but we're looking forward to another place, another land, another home. And yet, for now, we are here. We, too, stand on the shores of Babylon looking for another world to come. And you experience this daily when you go into your schools, when you go into your workplaces, when you go into your neighborhoods, perhaps when you go into your families even, and you sense that the values that we talk about on Sundays and that you celebrate in your small group are suddenly completely contradicted or pushed back against by the values that you find in the world around us. It's because we are strangers in a strange land. Well, the people of Judah experienced exile. We, too, perhaps have heard ourselves in one or more of these categories, and I simply just want to give us some brief responses to exile. I'm not going to spend much time on these, but I want to just give you some scripture and some thoughts in terms of how we might respond to these periods of exile. For those who are experiencing exile as a result of our sinful choices, there's one simple response. It's repentance. You find yourself in a place today far from God, lonely, isolated. It seems like he's not even here. And we know we can point back, and if we'll look back far enough, maybe it's just real recently, but maybe it's back a ways away where we made some choices, some rebellious choices. They didn't seem like they were maybe even that big at the time, but they were enough to get us going in the wrong direction. And because of our own sinful choices, God has enabled us, allowed us to experience and to suffer the consequences of those choices. He, it's not like he's punishing us, but he's given us that opportunity to, to turn around experience those experiencing those consequences the invitation for any of us who may find ourselves in a period of exile based on our sinful choices is to repent is to come clearly and beautifully and humbly before the lord and to simply say i am sorry and i call on you as a god of grace to forgive me maybe i've done it a thousand times before, but I'm doing it again right now. With this invitation from Isaiah, the chapters 40 of 55 of Isaiah are these wonderful reminders, these invitations that were sent to the exiles in Babylon. And just, will you read this one with me? It's, I think it's a couple of screens. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. 
Let him turn to the Lord one more, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. Our invitation is not to simply wallow in our consequences. I don't know about you, but sometimes in the midst of consequences, it's so hard to reach up and respond or receive the gift of God's grace and be pulled from him from the despair of our consequences, from our choices. But the invitation of this uh, passage from Isaiah and so many other in the Bible is just to simply seek me and I will be found. Forgiveness is available to you. Emerge, and in fact, the people of Judah would. The second one is this, for those experiencing exile as a result of pain and loss, the invitation is to hope. And again, it's, it, it's not a hope based on our willpower. It's not a hope based on the sun will come up tomorrow. It's not a hope based on things are going to be all right. It's a hope that's based on the promises and the presence of God. Right in the midst, I love this, right in the midst of this book of Lamentations that I spoke of earlier, this, this, these five chapters of just lament and, and crying, basically, comes this beautiful, like, raindrop of possibility and of hope. Listen to it. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. If you wondered where that hymn came from, there it is. Great is your faithfulness. And so any hope that we might have in the midst of great pain and loss, and I know that some of you here this morning are experiencing Deep pain and deep loss for a variety of reasons. Fill in the blank. And maybe you've carried that pain or that loss with you for a long time. And maybe on, on somebody else's scale, it would seem really, really, really bad or it would seem really, really small. But to you, it feels very, very significant. The invitation of God to those of us who may find ourselves in that kind of exile is to hope in the God whose faithfulness is great, whose mercies are new every morning. This morning, tomorrow morning, they'll be new again, and they'll be the sustaining grace that we need. Here's the last one for the people among us who are experiencing exile as a result really of being followers of Jesus in this world, as being strangers in a strange land, the, the response is really to mission. And this seems so counterintuitive perhaps because we've sung songs like, you know, I'm just passing through and and uh, this world is not my home, and these kinds of things that I just referenced that are all true, and yet we have allowed those to shape our activity in such a way that we just become 
little ghettos of Christians that kind of hunker down and, and remove ourselves and insulate ourselves and isolate ourselves from the world around us and say, just hold on. Another verse of Kumbaya. Jesus is coming. Hang on. We'll make it. Squeeze my hands a little tighter. Do it twice. We circle the wagons, and this is the practice. And, and while this is maybe needed at times, I won't totally throw it out. I like kumbaya, don't get me wrong. But this is not a way of life for the believer in the world today. This is not a, a, a paradigm for how believers are to live as strangers in a strange land. As opposed to being isolated and insulated, we are to be involved in the world in which we live. If only for a brief window of time. Take advantage of every moment. Listen to this passage, last one from Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 7. Jeremiah has written a letter to the exiles in Babylon. He's still back in Judah. And some other prophets are saying, hey, don't worry. The exile is only going to last a few more months. You'll be home before you know it. Don't even unpack your bags. Get ready. We're going to start rebuilding the city. And Jeremiah says, it's not what I'm hearing from God. Seventy years is what I'm hearing. But he says, this is what the Almighty, the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. And give your daughters in marriage. I stumbled a little bit on that one. (laughs) Sorry. So that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Is this what you expected Jeremiah's letter to say? Not in the typical evangelical world that so many of us live in. The new paradigm. But one I hope that we're catching on to, folks. We're not removing, pulling back, but moving forward into mission, into planting and building and living and experiencing and investing and praying and giving and serving and being the people of God in a strange land that still will probably look at us and say, you're strange, and that's okay. But they'll look at us as Peter writes in his little letter and give glory to God on the day he comes. So we move forward in mission. Well, what are we going to do with the exiles of our lives today? What are you going to do? Maybe you're in one right now. Maybe one is just around the corner. Maybe you're going to wake up soon to a new reality. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks. 
that you never forsake your people. And even in a portion of Scripture where we have landed for these moments that seems so harsh and brutal and devastating, and it is, we still catch glimmers of your goodness and your grace. And so in the same way, dear God, I want to, in these moments, validate for whoever may be feeling some sense of exile here this morning, whether it be as a result of their own sinful choices, some loss or pain in their lives, or simply because they're a follower of yours. I just want to validate that, that sense, that experience. Some are going through again even right now. It's brutal. It's devastating. It's hard. And yet, God, we want to be the kind of people as it seems that you invited your people to do who respond to exile not by shrinking back but by grabbing hold of your hand and moving forward even in these moments. We are reminded that the, that the 70 years in Babylon, historians believe, became a, a period of such great spiritual advancement in the people of God that, that really the, the, the whole scope of our existence was transformed. Our, our Bible took new shape and form. Our understanding of who God is and the significance of living in obedience to him became so important, and those carry on to us today. And so we're thankful, and we're believing, God, that just as great things came out of an eight-year-old king, so beautiful things can emerge out of our periods of exile. We come to you now. Thank you for inviting us, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.